Hello and welcome. I'm Simon. I am Haney. And I'm Alexander. We are Needy in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry, with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 219, recorded on March 28, 2023, even though Alexander wrote 2022. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on needypintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. I'm back! He is back. <laughs> it's it's true. <laughs> we tried, but he keeps coming back. Yeah. yeah, but you haven't learned which year it is yet, so I think it's good that I'm back and, and can straighten things up a bit. But I've heard that I'm considered Mr. Chaos. I don't understand why you would not be considered Mr. Chaos. No, 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 it's fine. It's just that you put a price tag on me as Chaos Studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know, right? Um, Simon as a service, that is instant mm-hmm. Chaos monkey mm-hmm. thingy. So mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So no, it's it's good to, to to have you back. We've had a couple of weeks of, of I was about to say Chaos, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to go for confusion because you were not here. Um, we had some um, issues with illnesses and then we went to sequel bits mm-hmm. we really need to find a way for you to get to sequel bits simon it is yes. absolutely fantastic yeah i have ideas I think already. we were invited back oh she says with a skeptical was, frown um yeah, yeah. no why I, would anyone invite us back <laughs> Well, ask me again uh, last uh, next year, and 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 we'll we'll see. Um, it was it was super fun to do the live recording, um, it and was it was great. actual a live recording. Uh, weird statement in itself, but um, super mm-hmm. fun. And also for the people that were there, uh, we're gonna connect to that live recording in in just a bit. How about we dive into the news because there are plenty of news. Mm-hmm. I, I think we can conclude that it is absolutely stupid for us to stay off the air for a couple of weeks because it turns out that the rest of the world does not stop. Holy Surprise. cow, it was a difficult thing to uh, to choose what stuff to p- pick up and what not to pick up. But, uh, well, Parbi has had some updates. So one of the things that we always hear with Power BI is that we want to have Power BI to be the PowerPoint of data. Now, that's an interesting discussion in and of itself. What kind of preconceptions you get in your head whenever you hear PowerPoint of data? Because everything you know about PowerPoint, well, it's going to color what you think Power BI is going to be like. But one of the things that just came out as a preview is known as on-object formatting. So you can, instead of having to go all the way to the right to uh, try to figure out what settings you want to use on a specific visual, now you can essentially right-click and format it as you would anything in PowerPoint, for instance. I think this is a huge step in the right direction. Um, Kind of sort of subtle, but it's definitely going to simplify how we uh, view visuals and how we work with visuals going forward. I love that. And then the world absolutely changed in its foundations because the Power BI format is an unholy mess. You get it in a couple of different versions or flavors, I should say. How about a raw, absolutely horrible JSON file? 
Yep, you can have that. Or why not, if you really hate yourself, in a uh, binary format? Mm, binary Ooh. formats are great for source control. Can Signal I get it whenever. in Excel? Careful what you wish for. <laughs> so at BITS, Matthias Tierbach and Gabi Münster came uh, with a session that was called The Future of Version Control for Tabular Models. And they introduced the Tabular Model Definition Language, TMDL, or TIMDL, also known as. Because the TIMDL is essentially a new uh, language or a new way of, of defining all the entities inside of a Power BI uh, report, all the way from, from the M code to all the tables to the DAX code, everything in a well-specified and well-behaved format that does not behave in all the weird ways that the JSON files inside of a BIM file does. So this is so much easier to work with and this will be the standard going forward. At the moment, there is, I don't think right now, there is any tooling uh, available to work with this, but PBI Tools is being updated as we speak. And uh, Daniel Otukir uh, at um, Tabular Editor has already said, yeah, this, this will be supported out of the box soon. And that is really, really, really cool because this is huge for um, any kind of, of uh, source control or collaboration or anything that has to do with uh, tablet models. So definitely the biggest thing that came out for Power BI for, for quite a while. Then we had the Power BI March feature updates. Uh, I'm pretty sure we had the February feature update and we kind of forgot to talk about that as well. But yeah, let's not bring that up. A couple of things. Uh, apply and clear all slicers. Oh God, we've wanted this for ages. You can now click a button and clear all the slicers. Thank you. Finally. Small thing, but it's a big thing. Storytelling in PowerPoint, uh, meaning the integration of PowerPoint and Power BI, uh, generally available. Awesome stuff. Multiple audiences, um, also generally available. Awesome stuff. And visual container improvements. It doesn't sound like much, but go look at the uh, blog post because suddenly you have that much more control over visualization placement. And uh, if you want to change sizes of, of uh, individual elements and stuff, again, it doesn't sound like much, but it gives you that much more control of your visual uh, reports. And finally, with something that came out, I just literally um, almost fell over it because it came out in... Um, LinkedIn, I was sitting reading a LinkedIn on back in, in England, and it's analytics in a box. So five patterns for different kinds of analytics. The first uh, pattern, for instance, Azure Synapse Analytics with a workspace and data lake and servers and dedicated pools, all the way up to pattern five, which is a metadata, meta, meta difficult word, driven Synapse pipelines with Azure SQL database in source, data lake in part case sync, and Synapse serverless star schema. All of these are ready to go out of the box, uh, very well um, defined and all those things. So take a look and um, use your own judgment. That's all I'm going to say about running a, a serverless and uh, trying to create a uh, dimensional model with views. Use caution. And uh, yeah, you're going to find out just how much fun it is. And that was pretty much what I had. I I can talk for days, but that's what I had in uh, on the list. Um, Haney, what do you what do you do? Oh, what do I do? 
<laughs> that was a weird question. There's so many answers to that. But what I'm going to talk about today <laughs> is a few new capabilities from here and there across the Azure landscape, as usually seems to be the <laughs> direction for me. And as Alexandra said, it was really hard to pick and choose what to take because there were so many things that I could have potentially talked about. So the first thing is something really interesting, which is called a data API builder for creating APIs on Azure hosted databases. And this is an open, open source project that has been developed recently, and it is now in preview phase, where you are able to use this tool to develop an API for your database. So for example, if you host your database in Azure SQL, you are able to use it to quickly build an API for that, whether it's a REST API or a GraphQL uh, endpoint that you need for it. And you pretty much uh, kind of tell it where can you find your database. Uh, then you are able to use this tooling th that will auto-generate the APIs for you and create the main, main uh, operations that are often needed, for example, for a REST API. And it is also a runtime in that sense that you will run this somewhere in Azure, kind of in front of your database. Uh, did I say somewhere in Azure? Uh, <laughs> there are also other options, actually. So you could run this in a container. So pretty much that means you could run it anywhere. And uh, you could also run it in uh, Azure static web apps as well. Yeah, go ahead, Simon. Would, would this be something that you could use for Power BI as well? So instead of showing the like the full database, would you use the API instead or would this have any other use case? Now Alexander looks very yeah. old. That's a, that's a way I haven't seen him look in years. Yeah, I do see this more for the purposes of applications needing mm -hmm. to communicate with your database and needing an endpoint to call. Mm -hmm. And really, if we think about it, like it can take quite a lot of time to develop those REST APIs, mm -hmm. for example, that run on top of your, your data in your database. So uh, at least at this moment, it is quite, you know, standard. You get the uh, specific crude operations, for example, and things like that uh, out of the box. And I do think it's going to evolve so that you have more control over what kind of things are you publishing from your database. And, and to explain my, my frown... <laughs> <laughs> uh, th this is going to turn into a focus segment down the line because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the discussion between integration can mean so many things, right? Mm -hmm. And I've, I've learned the hard way, the dangers of trying to talk about integration with people that come from BizTalk, for instance. They do integration all day long, but they are, do not do data integration. Mm -hmm. And trying to force a lot of data through an API is inherently dangerous it might seem like a good idea but it comes with some caveats having mm -hmm. this kind of api uh, available and also automatically created that is huge but it's not the same thing as moving a lot of, of data yeah for most scenarios the apis are more for the scenarios where you need a limited set of data mm -hmm. whereas you know full-on data integration on the other hand is where you move larger volumes of data around 
Thank you for explaining that. Looking forward to the focus segment. Yeah, can't wait. Uh, the next topic that I have that goes in... Well, I did want to add actually one more detail here. So we have this API builder and it it's also actually connected to a new update within Azure Static Web Apps that I find really interesting. So within Azure Static Web Apps, they uh, published this new capability to enable database connections where you can have this data API endpoint in your static web app that communicates through uh, to the database endpoint. And this is related to where you, we have the option of hosting the uh, data API builder within static, static web apps. So these two changes kind of tie, tie together. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a static web app that can run database queries. We're going to have an active static web app. Okay. That, that is weird. <laughs> is it actively static or statically active? I'm not sure. I have to test it out. (laughs) (laughs) Then on to more boring topics on the scope of Azure. So uh, there is a new SKU in Azure Firewall. And yes, there is a basic SKU that has come in. And yeah, Alexander is making faces again. But... Like in a lot of the Microsoft reference architectures and things like that, there is this concept of having a hub network, whether it's uh, through virtual van or whether it is having a hub and spoke architecture and then having some kind of firewall in this central virtual network that you create and then connect from there to on-premise sites and so on. And one of the biggest downfalls with Azure Firewall has been that it's not; it hasn't really been suitable for smaller companies because the cost has been so high and you wouldn't even use all the capabilities that are there. So I think that for a lot of organizations, this will bring it more accessible for for a whole lot of scenarios than it has been before. There is, of course, in it's, it is a basic SKU. Not all the capabilities are there, but uh, you have to just check according to your use case whether that is an issue or not. But I do think it brings this service much closer for people to actually be able to use it. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that a lot of organizations doesn't see the point of having a firewall in Azure until you start to work with the more advanced networking scenarios or where you want to control things. Like I've used Azure Firewall for Azure Virtual Desktop as an example to, to control traffic in and out of the VM, both towards the internet as well as internally. Uh, so uh, I do think this is a really good addition that I do see organizations trying out. And then we can have yeah. a long discussion on which kind of firewalls you should run in Azure. Because uh, yes. I might have been convinced by my colleagues that there might be options. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is. Yeah, maybe we should do a focus, focus segment about that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the last topic uh, that I found interesting is that there was quite many updates around Azure Backup. And it feels a little weird because backups, that's not that complex and like what is updating, etc. And the thing is that, well, I've been around Azure long enough to be used to the fact that when we do backups, we talk about Azure Backup, but we actually 
end up creating a recovery services fault. But if you haven't been working in that scope, it might have gone unnoticed that there's actually this new uh, resource around that you need to wrap your head around, which is the backup fault. So there is now two different kinds of fault within the backup and recovery services in Azure that you need to figure out when to use which. And the updates that have come out recently have been more geared towards the backup fault itself. So we'll see how that dynamic between these two services kind of moves on as we go along. And like, is it so that new features will come to backup fault and how? I'm not quite sure at this point. But what has come out is that we have immutable vaults for Azure Backup. And this is where you can have kind of an end date that you set your vault for and things cannot be uh, removed before that by any means. So it is essentially making it immutable. You cannot change anything in there, as the name states. The other capability that has come out is the ability to configure and um, manage not only operational backups for Azure Blob Storage, but also vaulted backup. So you can take a backup of the data in Azure Storage and have it hosted in the backup vault that you have. Earlier, we did have operational backups, but that was only for limited use cases and it would not fit in all scenarios. But uh, in this case, you also now have the vaulted backup option. And actually, this is also uh, available for the file storage as well. So not just for blob storage. So interesting uh, progressions on the backup vault scene. And it will be, I think we will see in the future how the dynamic between the, these two vaults changes. Uh, the backup vault mainly focuses on the newer additions to the backups services that are even available to you, like if you backup managed disks or Azure blob storage or file storage, etc., then you would use the backup vault. If you're backing up an entire virtual machine, for example, then you would be using the recovery services vault. Interesting stuff. Absolutely. And I do think immutable storage is something that we'll see more and more of, but that, on the other hand, requires your organization to understand what it does and how much the cost mm. for that will be over time so that you know exactly. the process of making something immutable and how far back in time you need it to be immutable and also how close in time you want to make it immutable because you might want to do changes to it before you, you put it into the immutable storage. And as you, you said, Simon, the, the key word there is uh, process. It's not mm -hmm. a technical mm -hmm. discussion. It's, it's a process discussion yep. and it becomes interesting. Yeah. It does. I do remember that you actually did a, a course and a certification within continuously continuity planning, Alexander. Uh, yeah. and, um, I do think that's very underestimated and something that my colleagues are working on now uh, and that will be even more important for organizations now where they actually have to think this through and see mm. how quickly can we get back on track because very few understand how long it takes to read back hundreds of terabytes of data. Long. Yeah, there are long. limitations for <laughs> even for the most modern hardware with hundreds of terabytes. Yeah, I mean, simple math and simple yeah. physics specify a maximum uh, theoretical uh, 
uh, recovery speed. Mm -hmm. And that only talks about physical recovery of the data. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then we have the logical recovery and getting yeah. stuff up. Not only the, the database stuff, that's going to take some time, but also mm -hmm. how to get the business back mm. uh, up and running. So I think um, that would be an interesting conversation with someone who specializes in mm -hmm. the the process of uh, getting back yeah. up after a huge outage, because that mm -hmm. is again not a not a technical discussion per se. It's a, it's a process discussion. Mm -hmm. Cool. And since I'm back, we of course have tons of Intune news to share. And I promise you I will be brief, but the content I have will instead fill at least two or three focus segments moving on. So be prepared for a lot of Intune. But I will actually change the order a bit of, of my news item and start with the news and then head into the big news that came out actually three weeks ago. But the news that we have more, more recently... Um, and like I've wrote in our show notes, it's almost as many new features as a regular Power BI afternoon. So, uh, let, but I will, I've chosen four of them that I think is quite interesting. One that's I've been asking for for around ten years is the device to category mapping. So imagine that you have two hundred iPads or computers or whatever. Uh, and you don't know who will receive a certain device when you hand them out. So schools are a great situation for this. So previously you have been able to show the user a list of different categories. You can say this class or this part of the organization or whatever. And if you click that, it will configure the device in a certain way. The problem you have is when you have like a hundred schools in a municipality which have all the classes and then you get you you can't filter the list so you get 300 categories so very few organizations have actually used this but now that's available from an administrative point of view so now you can specify a certain hardware will belong to a certain category and therefore avoid putting it into um Azure AD groups because that's not possible until you have enrolled the device so it's it's something that will ease onboarding quite significantly and uh, which will help administrators to prepare the device before giving it out to the users. This sounds a bit like an issue that we had in Windows NT4 with printers that you could not search for a printer. If you have a couple of hundred printers, well, you were up shit creek because you had this long list that you had to mm -hmm. find your specific printer and you never did. That was actually fixed not too long after NT4, but the problem <laughs> were that very few AD administrators care about managing printers, and therefore they just didn't care about sorting out the issue, and someone else got to sell them a very expensive printing solution instead. I was sure I you were not... going to say <laughs> yeah. that it was just solved a few days ago. <laughs> <laughs> Which may or may not be the case. Yeah, like... <laughs> If you're Alexander, a few days ago would be fairly close to NT4. If you're you and I, <laughs> NT4 is like eons of time. Oh my. I actually, I have actually never ever used NT4. So uh, we have bash scripts for Linux, which is great. So we can now deploy bash scripts from Intune on Ubuntu desktops. We have final configuration weight in Mac OS, which is very similar to... Um, the ESP, which I can't remember what it stands for now, uh, sorry for that, uh, in Windows, basically meaning that if a user enrolls a Mac OS device, 
they are not allowed into the operating system before some security settings have been configured. Today, they will, before this, they just enrolled, got straight in, uh, and uh, the device could be insecure at that point. So now they have to wait until it's actually finalized. And then moving back a bit, we also now are able to deploy available apps to device groups, which also sounds like, why haven't they sorted that out? But do remember that a lot of things in Intune are tied to a user. So therefore, you haven't been able to target devices which have dedicated users with an available app, which have been a rather complex situation. So now you could say that you're only allowed to install this certain app on these this group of devices, regardless of where you sign in. But th those are the news to Intune, and actually to the Intune P1 plan. Because up until now, Intune has been one of the very, very few things within Microsoft 365 which hasn't had SKUs. But now since March 1st, we have a Intune P1, Intune P2, and also a Microsoft Intune Suite. So it is actually a P3 but that wouldn't be a proper name, I guess. And the Microsoft Intune suite then combines the P1, which is the regular Intune SKU, which we always have had, which is part of E3 and Business Premium, whatever. It includes Intune Plan 2, which is Tunnel for mobile uh, for MAM, so it's basically a lightweight VPN service. And... Microsoft Intune Management of Speciality Devices, which is, in practice, like mixed reality headsets and so on. Uh -huh. But then, and I will cover Intune Suite in detail in a focus segment, but it also includes things like remote help, endpoint privilege management. So remote help, quite obviously, you connect to a device, help out. Endpoint privilege management, ability to control which what is executed as admin or not, more advanced analytics capabilities, and everything that will be released in the future, which includes things like cloud PKI and advanced app management, which we will learn more about in May 2023. So now we have more options than before in terms of Intune, but we are still getting quite a lot of new features to the regular Intune P1 plan. But I will cover Intune Suite in another episode. Talking about other things that I will mention in upcoming episode is the Microsoft 365 Copilot, and where I'm certain that we will talk a lot about how AI can build PowerPoint presentations for us and how it will most definitely fail in doing that. Uh, so we have Copilot within Microsoft 365, which we will cover in a later episode. Uh, today was also the day where they announced the security Copilot, so which is the uh, GPT-powered AI for security products within uh, Microsoft 365. So we can basically ask it, have I been hacked? And it will show you, yes, you have. Here is the evidence, among other things. But we'll cover both of the Copilots in a later episode. We also have a new version of Teams, finally. Uh, I haven't tried it yet. Uh, I've been, I haven't had time to download it or try it out, but I heard that there are some quite interesting bugs. But at the same time, they should have fixed things like switching accounts, performance, memory hugging, all of this. I, I think it's about time that they sort this out. Uh, but at the same time, it, it's... It's not 
like it's easy to forget that Teams is a relatively new product still. So that they have a V2 now is probably a little earlier than they expected, but at the same time, they did not expect Teams to grow as rapidly as it did after release. So we'll probably cover Teams in an upcoming episode as well. So a lot of things to look forward to and dig deeper into. AI, all the things, kind of. And I mean, with with Teams um, being better at handling memory, I mean, 50% of one terabyte of memory is still a lot of memory. Uh, But yeah, I'll I'll just leave that here. And uh, with that, I do think we are, for once, almost on time. And it's time for the focus segment, which um, Haney will take care of today. Yeah, I'm not sure three times five minutes adds up to 30 minutes. Simon was never good at math. You are, though. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, we are bringing back a discussion about architecture documentation that we did back in episode 182. And this was inspired by the fact that one of our listeners, Michal Poreba, tweeted about this and shared some uh, insights and questions about it. And the fact is that we really want to hear from you as our listeners. So if you have any comments about any of our focus segments or our news items or anything like that, just tweet or in other social media outlets, ping us. And we would be happy to go more into detail in mm-hmm. any of those areas. And this was a perfect timing because I was kind of already thinking actually around this topic anyways. And and it happened to come at a perfect time for this episode as well. So we talked last time that we had uh, discussions around this topic. We talked a little bit about what is the right level of like architecture diagrams and things like that. And I thought that this time we could talk a little bit about the tooling. What kind of tooling do you use? And have you found any useful uh, tools that are able to automatically, from pulling the information from somewhere, generate a good architecture image? And then also maybe a little bit about different systems of describing architecture, because there are quite a few different approaches and kind of formalized systems out there. Uh, but also your thoughts on those and whether you have seen those in practice. So who wants to go first? Sorry, I think I put two questions together, so hopefully that's not too confusing. (laughs) Can I just start by saying that I do think that we will have very different answers to this because... Yes. (laughs) and, And people might disagree, but architecture, when we talk about my stuff and Alexander's stuff and your stuff is vastly different in how they work and how integrated they are. So I think that's the the first thing you need to realize Mm. that architectural documentation, regardless of which tool you use, might be very, very different. And I don't think that you Mm. should try to use one tool to document your like at least not on a low level design level infrastructure. High level might be good because then you can have like big boxes, the things that I like, the things my daughter Mm. plays with uh, and (laughs) see how they fit together. But as soon as you 
go down on, on the Lego pieces, then you need to have different tooling, in my opinion. Yeah. What is the tooling that you use in your area, Simon? None. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I do Well, I do that think others use, <laughs> you don't use. No, but, but I do think that when, when, when I work with the tools I use, we are focusing a lot on the actual application of things. We are not talking that much about architecture. It, it might have been back mm -hmm. in the days when you had like config manager and you had huge server estates with distribution points and so on. Mm -hmm. But today it's mostly about what is applied to a current mm -hmm. configuration today. So it's more a point in time because that is all that matters in, in many cases. Mm -hmm. Then when, it, when we talk about like identity governance and automation, that's another thing. But then we go back to like, quite like regular tooling within Azure or just Visio drawings or a lot of the mm. tools are also self-documented. Like if you have a Power Automate flow, then it's self-documented. This is what happens. Mm -hmm. And it's not too often that you need something in addition. Um, we, I, I've actually looked into a solution that I, I will talk about later on. So that, that's that's my view. We take right. point in time snapshots. This is what we have. Focus more on what are we trying to achieve. And today, mm -hmm. in most organizations, you don't really have that much infrastructure to document mm -hmm. from a workplace point of view. Yeah, reasonable. So from my point of view, there there are, there are two sides. I mean, I I do both data state stuff and I do Power BI stuff. And uh, for the most part, it's going to be Visio. Uh, Visio is the way to draw out things. I find the whole idea of self-documenting uh, stuff to be a bit of a... I don't know. It, it's not a lie, but it does not really... It doesn't cover it, I'll say that. I mean, everything in Azure is, by definition, self-documenting. Um, Just read the, the JSON code, right? But, mm -hmm. yeah, it's... It's not that easy. Uh, there, there is one thing to see the specification. There is a whole different side of things where you explain what it's supposed to do and and how. Um, but that is actually something where I we we might see a good thing with um, Chat GPT and stuff to create that kind of documentation, as long as it doesn't hallucinate half of the <laughs> API, uh, which is, seems to be a recurring phenomenon. But when it comes to Power BI, I I would love to see more more tooling. Again, as it stands, it's going to be Visio, Visio mm -hmm. or or PowerPoint. In a lot mm -hmm. of cases, I see PowerPoint being used to draw out architecture uh, diagram. And at the end of the day, it is a bit of a black art. You're going to find if if you have five people, you talk to them about architecture, you're going to get at least nine different ideas. And mm. half of them are going to be wrong. So it's it's not clear-cut. I, I have yet to find a really, really good tool uh, because it's, A, very subjective, uh, what you want to have in an architectural drawing, and, and B, and this is the scary part, uh, what does architecture mean? So mm -hmm. we need to start with <laughs> defining what, what, what do these things mean? Yeah, I was hoping to skip that discussion for today, just for, you know, <laughs> clarity's sake. But of course, you needed to bring it up. But 
I do agree with a lot of the points that have been said. A lot of the tooling nowadays is kind of self-documenting. And for example, I work in a lot of projects, whether it's the data or software development side, where we're deploying Azure infrastructure with infrastructure as code. And for me, part of the benefit of that is I do not have to go and click around in the portal to figure out what are my specs for that environment. I can look at my infrastructure as code specification and see right away, okay, this is how it's configured and this is what it links to. But what can be difficult in bigger environments from that point of view is figuring out how things fit together and how, like, what is their functional connection in a way. And that can be the tricky thing. And I've had a chance to test a few of the automated tooling that is out there to draw, for example, Azure architectures. And well, I'm a very visual person and, and I also like the images to look nice and simple. And the thing is often that they either go to a too deep level or they stay at a way too high a level. And when it's automatically generated, you don't have so much control over what level does it go into. But a lot of times I also use tooling like Visio or there are some uh, other options like Lucidchart and things like that out there as well. And I've just used a variety of those depending on what happens to be available in the project that I am. But do you think there's a benefit of like, I think we kind of work in different areas a little bit. Do you think there's a benefit to having kind of this overarching view of what is the overall architecture of the environment that would encompass all these areas? Meaning kind of, I think, the big boxes that Simon was referring to. I do think that you, like, what would be the purpose? Because when you look at IT architecture and enterprise architecture, and especially like modern day architecture, you give a lot of freedom to the various technical teams as mm -hmm. long as they follow the side principles. So Very true. I'm not entirely certain that you ever would need to have that kind of architecture set up. The only time it could be beneficial or when it would be beneficial is if you have a massive cyber attack and you need to rebuild everything from scratch and where you can't use infrastructure as code for whatever reason to do it all from the start. But very few organizations that I've seen, especially if they are older organizations, which is older than five years, do have everything in code. Especially if you run hybrid setups, then mm -hmm. it's very, very complicated. Yeah. If you're cloud native, fine. But very few organizations in practice are that. So right. I, I think that at that level, it's it's not a question of actually drawing the architecture. Then it's more, this is what we aim at and how it's actually interconnected. It's based on some principles that everyone has agreed on. How they are then connected to each other, I don't see that much point in. And before I forget it, I think my challenge, and I think I mentioned this in the last episode where that i often think of architecture in 3d not 2d so i would always yeah. prefer to have a visual that yes. goes in three dimensions because mm. i can't make a logical simple to view architecture diagram 
if I don't have three dimensions. But that's just how I am. One thing that I, I kind of got stuck up was, Simon, you said, what, what would be the point? <laughs> and I, I'd love for, for a lot of architects to actually stop and ask that specific question mm -hmm. before they start to produce a metric ton of, of mm. paperwork. If there is no point, don't do it. If there exactly. is a point, well, stop and think of how to do it. Um, because just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? Um, having said that, I think that larger um, projects could benefit from an overarching um, drawing. Um, but if it needs to be proper architecture or not, nah, that, that's definitions, right? As long as everybody's on the same page, you can call it whatever you want and you can do it on, on a piece of paper or a napkin if that works, as long as it works for everybody. And then you could always ask yourself, if the project is that big, so it requires that amount of documentation architecture, should it really be a project? Very true. It might be that I have a little bit of a, like a different perspective in mind, but Oftentimes, what I find lacking in organizations that I go into as an external person in the beginning, the issue is oftentimes that all the information is so scattered that nobody has a clear, simple overview mm -hmm. of the environment. And even if you work in a single project with some details, it often helps to understand some of the overview of the rest of the environment. And what happens is then that every new person that comes in, whether they're external or internal, they kind of learn by mistake or by mm -hmm. asking 10, 15 people around and figuring out and piecing kind of their own image in their head of what this is. And I do think it has to do a little bit of like what we think in terms of how do you describe architecture. I do think it's a little maybe too strict and not conducent to the current time of how we do things. As you said, Simon, a lot of the times teams have a lot of flexibility in how they do things. But it's still good to understand like, well, for example, well, which workloads are in Azure? What is the like very high level networking scenario? Do I need to know when I'm working with this that there's some firewall somewhere that I have to be in contact about to somebody, just kind of having more a high-level box uh, view of all the things that are involved in the environment. We're, we're essentially trying to avoid institutional knowledge, the things yeah. that everybody knows. And it turns out that half of the people no. didn't know, and assumption is the mother of all. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And for me, I've seen oftentimes when that has been drawn out, whether it's on a you know, whiteboard in a session so that we can all point at things and say, is this here? Is this here? Then people start to have a little bit of an aha. Okay, now I understand why this didn't work. And it doesn't need to go to the level of how each piece communicates together or anything like that. I think even from the, like, the endpoint perspective, it could be something like, yes, you have Intune and you have the devices and here's a short box with a like very condensed description of what are mm -hmm. we trying to do with this? Like, what are you trying to apply, as you put it? So I often think we should kind of refresh the idea of how we view architecture and what is, why are we describing it and how are we describing it? Mm. 
And, and I know that we're running out of time, so I just throw some things in there, which we might talk about another time. First, decoupled <laughs> architecture. What will, <laughs> what will happen if we start to talk about that? <laughs> Second, who is supposed to read this architecture documentation? Because who are you sending it to? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's an interesting question itself. And then I will actually do... Uh, adver uh, advertisement for a, it's very rare that we do that in this episode but have you looked into argos security or argos because that is a tool developed or developed by a, a small startup in australia led by david o'brien an mvp within data center management which does document both azure and aws environments automatically and also map both hmm. from a security point of view, infrastructure point of view, and maps that towards various frameworks like NIST, uh, CIS, PCI, whatever. Uh, so that's a tool that I still haven't tried, but I look forward to try because I do think that that is, it's built by consultants for consultants. Mm. So a quite interesting approach. So Haney is is asking for a fresh take on architecture. And now it's up to, to the rest of the world to deliver on this ask. Yeah. Yeah. At least to architecture documentation. Mm -hmm. Yes. But we, it, it nobody would be great. reads the thousands of pages of documentation no. that are somewhere. And that nobody would be my it. point. Yeah. But it would be fun because I think Haney is the one that have access to the biggest Azure environments of of us so it would be cool if you could try argos on on one of them and see how it actually works i know that david would be more than happy to to both be here and and to talk about it oh that would be really interesting and it's it's free or free to mm. try and as mvps we have benefits good to know mm -hmm. we're running out of time and i wanted to uh, plug one thing and that is we're running the um I can't remember if it's the 4th or 5th, uh, Data Saturday Stockholm on mm -hmm. May the 13th. And Marte Moengen, a absolutely phenomenal Norwegian data platform MVP, is running a pre-con that's on Power BI report development process. It might not sound that cool, but trust you me, it is really, really cool. And use the code KDIT. 2023 for a 25% discount on that pre-con. You should Ooh. definitely go to that pre-con if you have the chance. That's going to be on uh, May the 12th uh, in, in Stockholm. And that's pretty much it for this episode. It's very nice to have Simon back. And uh, we, we're, we're really back to the, the old ways of not adhering to a, a um, proper timeline. Uh, and I even didn't cover all the topics I had for the focus segment. I know. I didn't cover all the stuff that I wanted to talk about in the news segment either. So, yeah. And no, uh, we are not extending uh, the the uh, length of the episodes. No. <laughs> no. Well, until next time, we have a lot of really cool stuff uh, lined up, a number of interviews. And, of course, there's always... Um, a ton of new things that uh, keeps coming out. So we'll be back in another two weeks. And until then, have a great one. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Need Even Tech. 
Hidibin Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Haini Hilmaninen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at hidibintech.com.